Today on the Doc on the Run podcast, we're talking about perineal tendon injuries in runners. Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Segler, and thanks for tuning in to the Doc on the Run podcast, where we help you understand how to keep training and running even if you've been injured. I recently had the honor of being interviewed by Runners Connect to contribute my thoughts on perineal tendonitis in runners. This live recording was part of the four-day injury prevention summit where Runners Connect interviewed 25 of the world's most renowned running injury experts. This episode is going to be an overview on perineal tendon injuries in runners. And for most of you listening to this, it will give you all the information you need to figure out what's going on with your perineal tendons and get back to running. But make sure you go to the show notes page and I'll explain how you can get access to the corresponding video lecture that was presented during the four-day injury prevention summit. Okay, so we will be covering perennial tendonitis today, as you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I think first off, just in case people don't listen to your first talk on Achilles tendonitis, yeah. could you just, again, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before we jump into the interview? Sure, of course. Thanks for having me on the Injury Prevention Summit. And uh, I'm Dr. Christopher Segler, otherwise known as Doc on the Run. I am uh, a podiatrist, a surgically trained podiatrist, foot and ankle surgeon, who also happens to be a runner, and I specialize in treating runners and triathletes. I do Ironman triathlons, which is part of that. I also go to medical conferences several times a year and actually teach physicians how to keep runners running and try to find creative ways to treat runners differently than normal patients so that they don't have to have the standard sort of immobilization, stopping running, all those sort of things that many doctors do seem to want to recommend to patients. That's really my background. Awesome. Great. First off, can you just tell us what perennial tendonitis is and what what, is, what happens during this injury? Sure. So, well, anything that ends in itis is inflammation, right? So if you have tonsillitis, that's inflammation of the tonsils. If you have tendonitis, it's inflammation of a specific tendon. They're basically two tendons that, that are the perineal tendons. And there are two of them. So there's the perineus brevis and perineus longus. And the fibula is the bone on the outside of your ankle. And so the perineus longus is way up in your leg up high, kind of just below the knee, and that tendon comes down, uh, curves around the fibula, and goes down attached on the bottom of the foot. We'll talk about that more in a second, but the perineus brevis is the one that hurts most of the time, and it's brevis for short because it's shorter than the longest, and it starts behind the fibula, and then the tendon comes down right behind the bone here, curves around the fibula, goes around and attaches right to this little bump on the outside of the foot. Because it comes around to this bump on the outside of the foot, it is the primary, um, what we call, everter of your foot. And so if you start to roll your ankle on a trail or something like that, if you're running and you start to roll over, it's the only one that will pull the foot back under you. So the perineus uh, brevis muscle is often injured when people roll their ankle, when they sprain their ankle, when they you know step off a curb, um, when they're running or a route on a trail, something like that. And it can get flared up and inflamed. The thing is important about that is the brevis is sitting right behind the fibula. The longus, actually, since it's longer, comes behind the perineus brevis. Then they go in a common tendon sheath, curves down around here, goes through that little groove in the cuboid, and goes down across the bottom of your foot to attach to the base of the first metatarsal at the bottom of your foot. So the primary job in life of the perineus longus is to prevent the first metatarsal from lifting up. So when I'm checking a patient with perineal tendon issues, I basically like to put my hand against their foot and I tell them to push my hand away. If they push away, that's firing the perineus brevis and that hurts because they're pushing and they're firing that thing away. The way that I test the perineus longus is I, since it's pulling down this metatarsal bone right here, 
it twists and locks that joint, and that's its only job in life. And if and it because it attaches at an angle, so it has to lock that joint. So if I put my thumb under here, and I say, okay, push down, and I push up, and that bone lifts up, or or it causes pain when when I push and I have them resist that motion, that's the perineus longus. So you have two of them that are behind there, you know, on the outside of the ankle. So most people that have perineal tendon issues, it's usually somewhere around here where it hurts. It's just on the outside of the ankle, somewhere in that area. The important thing is that if you have a severe perineal injury, the brevis is usually the one that causes trouble because it's right against the fibula. And if you split it or you actually rip it along its longitudinal axis, the problem is, is that the longest is behind the brevis. So if you split the perineus brevis, you know, you normally have one tendon sitting in the front, the other one's in back, but if you split it, then you have two pieces in front. And that piece in the back pushes its way between the two pieces of the perineus brevis, separates them, and they never get back together. The first thing you have to understand is that's what people write about. So doctors, most doctors, I think, tend to write things on their websites or in articles for magazines and that sort of stuff that freak people out. So if you read about perineus brevis, tendon tears, splits, whatever, it's almost always talking about that specific split in the back of the perineus brevis tendon that just will not get together again unless you have surgery. In many cases, it are written by orthopedic surgeons or podiatric foot and ankle surgeons who are trying to convince you that you should come in to see if you need surgery. Most runners don't get that. You can get that, but it's not an acute issue. It's a, it's a thing that happens over a long period of time. That, those are really the main issues with perineal tendonitis or inflammation of the tendon is that you do something to strain either one of those two tendons. Either you roll your ankle, uh, you're running on new shoes that are unstable, like if you're running on Newtons and you've never run on them and you have to stabilize yourself and you're wobbling back and forth a whole lot as you run, the perineal tendons are firing to stabilize your foot. If you're doing hill repeats or calf raises and you're pushing off a whole lot repeatedly, you can actually inflame the perineus longus tendon. But it's basically some kind of overuse injury where you've inflamed one or both of those tendons. Okay, great. Awesome. So in terms of conservative treatments, ones that would, people would do at home, what would you suggest for that if they're trying to just get ahead of the game and, and nip it in the bud before it um, progresses yeah. into something worse? That's a great question. So I talk to a lot of different doctors about this when I go to conferences and I read lots of other stuff. And the thing is that everybody gets so freaked out about this idea of the splits in the perineus brevis that the most common treatment is a fracture walking boot for six weeks. Some, some doctors that say they're you know, more aggressive or whatever will, will say they only do four weeks in a boot, but you do not want to do four weeks in a boot if you're a runner. So um, the first thing is that immobilization will definitely make it better. With most patients, if they have one of the sort of just forms of tendonitis, whether it's perineus longus or perineus brevis, if they immobilize it for four to six weeks, it will get better. But that comes at such a huge price to you as a runner that it's not worth doing it unless it's truly necessary. So I would never do that to a runner unless I had an MRI that proved there was a severe problem with the tendon. Because I think it's just too risky. You know, you lose too much fitness, you get too much stiffness. You get all kinds of problems that will make you more prone to other injuries later. And the whole goal is to run, not just to fix this one thing, right? So that's the first thing you have to understand. The second thing is that there's a whole range of injuries. Nobody fits into four weeks or six weeks consistently. Everybody heals differently. Most runners I see, since I only see runners, most of my patients get better faster than others. That doesn't make me a better doctor. I'm just lucky that I get to work with runners who are strong, healthy, motivated. They're smart. They research all this stuff, figure out what they need to do. They do most of that stuff so they get better anyway. And 
it, so I have sort of this like unique set of patients that seem to heal faster than others, but it's not me, you know, it's just the patients. And, you know, you have to do something to reduce the inflammation. So if it's true tendonitis, well, that's just inflammation of the tendon. In most runners, I think it's actually tenosynovitis. And the difference is that tenosynovitis is inflammation of the sheath that goes around the tendon. So again, both of those tendons, you know, are going around a corner. There's a lot of friction when you move around the back of the fibula and there's a lot of friction when you go under here. So there's a common tendon sheath that curves back around here but behind the fibula in this area. And the two tendons come down the back of the leg and they enter that sheath together and they go down the tunnel together. The sheath is lined with synovial fluid that is um, the fluid that this is synovial fluid inside your joints, inside tendon sheaths, and that's what lubricates the tendon so it can glide around that corner. The synovial tissue is soft and squishy and has lots of nerve endings. So if you aggravate the tendons in an overuse injury, in most cases, I think that the early forms of it are really truly tenosynovitis. So even though you push on the tendons and it hurts, it doesn't mean it's tendonitis. It may just be the sheath. And if it's just the sheath, that's actually good news because it'll calm down really fast. So if you can ice it and do something to just decrease the inflammation and you can decrease the stress to that area so that the tendons aren't moving as much, it will calm down really quickly. If you do that and you get better really fast, it's almost always tenosynovitis because the tendon takes longer for it to calm down because the blood flow is not as good in the tendon. Um, so you have to do that initially. You want to try to just shut off all the inflammation. And, you know, again, it's a whole range of trouble. You can either get an MRI to try to discern that or you can just try the treatments that would help the earlier forms of tenosynovitis and tendonitis. And if it improves, then you have an answer. You don't need to waste half a day and, you know, $1,000 on an MRI you can figure it out just by treating it. So what I would say is that for anybody that has pain that they suspect is perineal tendonitis, it really doesn't matter that much which tendon it is, um, except you want to try to remove the offending activity, right? But if it really hurts, you're probably not going to be running on trails or doing hill repeats or whatever anyway. So, you know, it doesn't really matter that much, but you want to try to shut off the inflammation first thing. That's the biggest thing. So what that means is that you know you want to ice it or do contrast bath soak, wear compression socks, elevate, particularly while wearing compression socks to try to force that fluid out of there as quickly as possible. I would even sleep in compression socks for a few days because when you're flat, you know your blood pressure goes down, your heart rate goes down, there's no gravity pushing fluid down there. And all those things can help decrease the inflammation in the tendons themselves and the tendon sheath. So that's sort of the first step. The other thing is that if you notice walking around the house, it hurts more when you're barefoot, don't go barefoot. Wear running shoes or whatever in the home. You know, it's not that complicated. So you can add all these different steps of treatment along the way, but you want to start with the simplest ones first. Okay, great. So you did touch on some training modifications. You don't want to run uphill and, and on any sort of um, rocky terrain. Are people, are they good to maybe just go for some light running still or should they maybe replace their running with cross training while they recover well that's a good question so i say that if you have irritation in the perineal tendons and you're doing anything that hurts them causes pain causes tenderness you're probably not going to heal as fast as you should you have to think again like what caused it so if running on an unstable surface like sand you know you run on sand your feet are skating out from under you that sort of running on sand can cause this stuff to flare up initially Obviously, you don't want to run on an unstable surface. We also run on unstable surfaces in the form of shoes, right? So, um, you know, you can run in really stable shoes that you know are stable for you. Uh, we know that trail shoes are more stable than most cushioning running shoes. And 
Newtons, depending upon which ones you use, may be really unstable, particularly if you haven't run on them before. Some patients just can't tolerate those. And just to sort of explain that idea, I'll share a story uh, for me personally. So for a, I started using Newtons for speed work a long time ago. Uh, I'd done a bunch of races in them, and I had done an Ironman race in them, and then I hadn't worn them for several weeks, which I kind of realized, and I was ramping up for another Ironman. And I, it sort of occurred to me, I was like, okay, I was like four weeks out from this race from Ironman Florida, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to use the Newtons, I better get used to them again. Because you do have to become accustomed to the sort of, you know, wobbly nature of landing on those four-foot lugs. But I wanted to use them for Florida, so I thought, okay, well, I'll run in them this weekend. This is one of those classic mistakes that runners make. And, you know, I mean, I understand all this stuff. I write about it, I think about it, I lecture about it to physicians. You'd think I would know better. Everybody makes mistakes. So... I thought, okay, like I'll use them this weekend. That's reasonable. And then I thought, well, because I'm four weeks out, I'm supposed to run 16 miles on Sunday. Well, then I thought, okay, but I justified that, right? This is what we do. We like do something stupid, then we justify it. We do something stupid and justify it. So I thought, well, I'm going to run with one of my wife's friends, actually. And she likes to talk. So, you know, we're going to be running kind of slow because she'll be talking the whole time. And it won't be that big of a deal. So... I justified it, but then we ran 16 miles of hills, basically. And the next day I woke up, and on the side of my foot, literally from here all the way over here, this entire area was completely black and blue. And it really hurt. This is not a good sign, right? Four weeks out from Ironman, Florida, uh, and I had this huge bruise and swelling on the outside of my foot. I actually thought that I split the tendon. It, you know, it was so sore and so bruised because bruising is a terrible sign. If it's bruised, you ripped something, tore something, broke something, whatever, enough that you got bleeding under the skin that is then showing itself, right, as a bruise. So I was like, wow, you're an idiot. This would be malpractice if, if you were my patient, you know. Um, so uh, that was all from running on unstable four-foot lugs that I wasn't used to, running too far, got fatigued. So then I, my tendons are working harder trying to absorb that force as I fatigued during the run, running on hills uh, as I got worn out. So obviously in that circumstance, the worst thing would be to run on those same shoes again. You know, definitely be better with something stable, you know, regardless of what kind of shoes you run in. Anything more stable would be better. Anything minimalist would be worse because your body has to stabilize yourself. But if you add a shoe that has a stable platform, a wide flare under the forefoot that imparts stability because it works kind of like an outrigger, then that helps, right? So you have to identify what started at first and not do that thing. That's a big part of it. Okay, great. Okay, awesome. And I, that's a, a great story that a lot of runners can relate to. I know I've, I've done that myself quite a few times is try out something new in a long run that didn't uh, agree with me. So, so let's, no, it's not. So I guess we've talked about more conservative treatments. How about if those don't work out, what would be the next step for runners? This is the doc on the run podcast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. What's a virtual doctor visit. The idea of not running at all while waiting for my foot to heal was simply depressing. I really needed a second opinion from an expert, someone who specializes in helping runners. 
What you'll get from Dr. Segler in my experience is expert runner and medical care that's individualized for your needs. I'm left with actionable steps to recover from my injury. Dr. Segler is different and I felt heard, didn't feel patronized, and I felt like he prioritized getting me back to running as soon as possible as much as I did. I just couldn't see sitting around for six weeks knowing my hard-earned fitness would vanish. I know Dr. Segler is an expert and I wanted to see him in person. But frankly, I just couldn't afford the cost of a house call. I saved enough money to pay for my next marathon registration. You know, I have an appointment with Dr. Segler, whether it's via Skype or on the phone. You can expect, one, he's going to be on time. Two, he's going to be able to spend more time with you than the typical uh, visit in a doctor's office. And both of those are going to result in a more effective diagnosis and treatment plan for you. I'm a young woman in the Philippines and I hurt my ankle yesterday. I just wanted to say thank you and that it's such a relief to be able to find a website like yours and get some information when I'm in a place with uh, little to no medical care. So I just wanted to call and say thank you. You're awesome. Book a virtual doctor visit and get a second opinion online today. Welcome back to the Doc on the Run podcast. If those don't work out, what would be the next step for runners? Right. So like what I did initially during that episode, let's say, is I was worried about it. Now, I can tell you for sure, if I saw a 100 podiatrists, 98 of them at least would have said, you have to use a fractured walking boot for six weeks. Again, this is four weeks out from Ironman, Florida, right? So, I mean, I'm not stupid, though. I mean, I did a stupid thing, but I'm not really stupid. So I basically was like, okay, I got to be aggressive here. I tried icing it. It felt a little better, you know, after I really iced it. I mean, I completely submerged my foot in ice water. Uh, It made a big difference. And walking around in running shoes, it actually felt much better. So I'm like, this is a good sign, right? You know, media feels better after icing. I can walk in running shoes without dying. Um, So I wore running shoes all the time. But then I also was like, okay... I only have four weeks. I don't have time to screw around with this. So I wore a fracture walking boot for like three days. And just wearing the fracture walking boot and completely immobilizing it just to let it really calm down. And I was wearing compression socks, by the way. Um, I slept in the compression socks. I slept in the boot. And within just a couple of days, it was basically pain-free. Like the next day, I could walk on it in the boot with no pain at all. So I wore the boot for a couple of days, completely calmed down. Um, then I went back to running. I was cautious about what shoes I was doing. I ran on stable surfaces. You know, I was about to start tapering anyway. So at least I've kind of made it through most of the long stuff. And then I went to Ironman Florida and that was my fastest Ironman ever. So you can recover, you know, so don't, I mean, I was pretty freaked out about it at the time, but it did wind up being my fastest Ironman ever. So again, 98% of podiatrists would have told me that I couldn't do the race and that I should be watching the race wearing a fracture walking boot. And you don't have to do that. So that's sort of what I did as I tried like the shoes, I tried some icing, uh, I tried compression, and then I immediately was like, I don't really want to wait to see if I'll be better in a week. I'm just going to use the boot for a couple of days now. Most people will not need to do that. But I had what I felt like was a really sort of compressed time frame with high urgency to get better as quickly as possible and that was what i did so if you if you do ice you do compression you try some more stable shoes then the next thing is basically to try something like either you go see a doctor they will tell you to use a fracture walking boot or you can get an mri to look at it and see if you have a more severe injury before you try a fracture walking boot or you can just try a fracture walking boot for a very brief period of time the in-between treatment for those is to use really, really stiff backpacking boots. 
Like I have, I've got a pair of boots that I use for uh, approaches on rock climbs. I uh, use them when I fly, fly a paraglider. They're pretty stable, so they're pretty protective. Those boots are really stiff and very stable, but they're really backpacking boots is what they are. Then I also have some plastic mountaineering boots that I use for ice climbing. Those are just as stiff as a fracture walking boot. It's obviously a lot easier to walk in hiking boots than a fracture walking boot, and most people have those at home. So, you know, the next thing really is instead of just trying to not use unstable minimalist shoes, uh, is to try something more stable in terms of an athletic shoe. If that doesn't seem to make a big difference, then you can try like a backpacking boot or something that's really stable to try to see if that additional stability will let it calm down quickly. Okay, great. Awesome. Okay, I just want to take a break for a second here because I realize that we're covering a lot of material really quickly. When listening to the audio playback, I realized that I was using a number of anatomic foot models and visual demonstrations that help solidify these ideas about perineal tendon anatomy and perineal tendon injuries. Well, don't get confused by this. If you're having a hard time visualizing the anatomy or exactly what I was trying to explain visually, I'm going to give you two ways to better understand. The first thing is that if you want to see the actual live video recording of this lecture, all you have to do is go to docontherun.com and I'll make sure you can still get access to the video lecture. You do have to pay for that access, but right now Runners Connect is offering an awesome deal. By the way, I don't get any sort of commission if you click on that link, but I do think it would be valuable for you. And the cost is really cheap. In fact, this morning I spent more money at the coffee shop than you would spend for a month of access to all the lectures, not just mine. So go to the podcast show notes page for this episode on DocOnTheRun.com, click on that link, enter your email, and it will immediately send instructions to you on how to access the Injury Prevention Summit. The second thing is, I've been working on a new multi-part series on perineal tendon injuries that is going to clearly break down everything runners need to know about the various different forms of perineal tendon injuries in runners. The first episode will come out next week and the others will follow shortly thereafter. So go to the show notes page on docontherun.com, click on the link at the bottom of the page, and I'll make sure you get immediate free access to the upcoming episodes delivered directly to your inbox the second they're released. So in terms of prevention, obviously a lot of this comes down to footwear, but are there any exercises any would foot core perhaps help just prevent this injury in the future yeah so basically you know why do you get injuries i mean it's really simple if you think about it all injuries doesn't matter what it is it can be the achilles tendon it can be anything right how do you injure your back your back's weak and you do something that twists it and pulls it in the wrong direction it's it's all the same stuff right so if you get injuries to the perineal tendons one of a couple of things happen either you had a traumatic injury like rolling your ankle that stretched and stressed them or you had little bitty over and over and over motions that simulated that same motion, just not to the same degree, and you did it so many times that you got an overuse injury. That's either because the muscle is not dynamically absorbing the force or the tendon is not pliable enough to avoid the, absorb the force when the muscle kind of you know, fades, when you lose your strength, when the muscle peters out and is not able to contract efficiently. Well, that muscle is not really working to absorb those forces over a longer period of time. So the tendon, which is just a stiff cable, has to absorb the forces. So if you can have a more pliable tendon, that helps. If you can have stronger perineal muscles, that also helps. If you wanted all the exercises, you'd probably be better talking to a physical therapist. But I think there are just a couple of really simple exercises that you can use to strengthen the perineals. Obviously, standing up on your toes is going to fire the perineus longus. 
and that certainly can help that. But for the perineus brevis, which is the one most commonly injured, remember if you're looking at the foot and you know you put your hand against it, if you're pushing outward against resistance, then that basically is firing the perineus brevis selectively. Where so you're sitting in a chair and you take your feet and then you cross your legs and you put your little toe joints together and you push you know, your little toe joints together so that you're pressing and holding just for like 30 seconds. If you're just pressing the feet together with your legs crossed, then that will actually fire the perineus brevis tendons and strengthen them. When we look at patients that have chronic ankle instability, they virtually all, if you measure them objectively, have weak perineus brevis muscles. And so one of the things I do in ankle rehab um, with patients, with runners who sprain their ankles on trails is I have this whole thing I wrote out that will show them exactly how to retrain their ankles so they don't get sprains anymore. It's very specific, but there's one exercise and it's that one where they're basically crossing their legs and pushing the little toe joints together to try to fire their perineal muscles and strengthen them. I'm like, just do that 10 times a day when you're sitting at your desk, when you're watching TV, whatever, and you can really strengthen those muscles. I really and truly believe that like 90% of the patients who get chronic ankle sprains where their ankles are weak and they're rolling their ankles, they're at risk for perineal tendon injuries as a result, if they just did that multiple times a day, every single day, they wouldn't have those problems anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. So a lot of it does come down to preemptive action, like you said, but um, I think that pretty much covers everything I wanted to get to. Is there anything you feel like we might not have touched on? Yeah, there's probably one other thing we'll probably to mention really briefly. And because I get this question all the time, and it's about popping and clicking with the perineal tendons, right? So um, you can get what we call subluxing perineal tendons. And that's where the tendons, you know, they're sitting behind here on the back of the fibula, and there's a band of tissue called a retinaculum that holds them in place. The fibula, I don't know if you can see it here, but it's supposed to have a groove. Can you see that little sort of concave groove right there? Yeah. Yes, so that's mm -hmm. the normal anatomy, but there are three different versions of the fibula. So in one case, it has that little groove or trough where the perineal tendons can sit in the trough. So when they fire, they don't flip forward. Some people, it's kind of flat. And some people, it's actually curved outward, which is not great. So if in the cases where it's curved outward, it's really easy for the tendons to kind of pop toward the front of the fibula. And when they pop over that little edge of bone, it can make a popping or clicking sound. It can also, the tendons can just flip back and forth and make a popping and clicking sound. My ankles have done that my whole life. And uh, many years ago when I was in college, I was working in this uh, shop. It was a climbing store. Uh, but this guy, Brent, used to always tell me that I could never work for the FBI because I could never sneak up on anybody. Because you could hear my ankles popping and clicking all the time walking around the store. And it's been doing that forever. So it doesn't bother me when I run. It doesn't hurt. It, it's not a problem right? So if it's not a problem, you don't have to worry about it. And that's the main thing is you have to remember that whatever the problem is, it you have to decide whether it's a real problem or it's just a, an annoyance. But if you have popping and clicking in the perineal tendons and you get recurring perineal tendon issues, you know, you're, you're not doing something silly. You're not running like 40 miles on sand, you know, or running on really unstable trails all the time or, you know, running in shoes that are too unstable for you, but you're, you're, you have popping and clicking and you continue to get issues with the perineal tendons, you could either have a torn perineal tendon or a perineal, uh, not tendon, a torn perineal retinaculum that holds those behind the fibula, um, or you could have one of those, you know, oddly shaped fibulas that just put you more at risk of the perineals subluxing. So that's the only other thing is that, you know, you do have to kind of be aware of that, but 
that's not a thing you can fix easily. So we, we can fix it with surgery. You don't really want to do that if you're a runner, uh, if you can avoid it otherwise. But, you know, you want to address that if that is your issue. Okay, interesting. So what percentage, when it comes to this injury, what percentage is uh, prompted by that issue? That's pretty rare. Is that kind of a... Yeah, that's pretty rare. Okay. I think, yeah, I think there are lots of people that have popping and clicking, and they they assume it's a problem. You know, um, mine you would assume it's a problem, but I mean, I run on the Dipsy Trail all the time. I run, I've run on trails a long time. Uh, I run on all different kinds of shoes. I run in Newtons. I run in Kinvaras. I run in minimalist shoes. I run in lots of different kinds of shoes on lots of different surfaces, and I have technically some issue with my perineal tendons, but it's never a problem. So. You know, the only problem I got was because I did something really stupid running 16 miles in unstable shoes when I wasn't used to them. So, you know, it's not the popping and clicking. It's not the, the movement of the tendons in there. So I think that, that true subluxing perineal tendons are very rare. However, if you go to an orthopedic surgeon and you tell them you have popping and clicking and if you had any history of problems on the outside of your ankle, they're likely to tell you you need surgery to fix that. There's two ways to do it. One way is that the old school way, the way that I think is terrible for runners, is we actually we open the ankle, we pull the perineal tendons out of the way. On the back of the ankle, we actually um, take an osteotome, which is a fancy word for a chisel, and we make a, basically a slice in the bone here and a slice on the bone there. We basically just take the chisel and tap into the bone, and it cuts into the bone. And then we take a bone tamp, which is a metal thing about this big, and we put it right there and put it between the two slices in the bone and we hit it with a hammer and it caves it in. That makes a groove. The problem is it also it also bleeds in there and then you get scar tissue between the tendons and the back of the bone, which causes another problem. The better way to do it is to actually take the tendons out of the way and we take a drill and we shove a drill into the end of the fibula where the tendons aren't in there and we go up under here and then basically by holding the drill underneath the bone we basically are spinning the drill bit and we move it up and down behind there so it keeps the covering of the bone intact. But you can see the drill bone because it's opaque um, as it gets close to the surface of the bone. So without going through the surface of the bone, we kind of grind it away. And then we put a bone tamp in there and we push it in so it makes a, a, a concavity, but it doesn't disrupt the surface. However, that's still surgery. And if you have surgery, you're going to get scar tissue between the two tendons. Even if we don't get scar tissue between the bone and the tendons, when you put them back in the groove and we sew the retinaculum back together, you're going to get scar tissue. So you really don't want to do that. You want to avoid that surgery for sure. And it's one doctors will commonly recommend because it seems like a simple thing. And all you have to hear is pain, popping, clicking. That's it. You should have some kind of surgery to fix that. Um, so I would not recommend that. You know, that, that's the big thing. Okay, that's great to know. That's always why you want to consult with a, a running specialist like yourself first, I guess. So it's good to know. There are two other conditions, actually, aside from the subluxing perineal tendons, that, that can kind of be mis misdiagnosed as perineal tendon issues. Because if you think about this, if you look online, I even have a thing on, on one of my websites where I had created this, you know, symptom finder. And basically, if you have any pain in this area it talks about all the things that can go wrong in this area. The most common thing is perineal tendon issues. But if you've sprained your ankle, if you have chronic ankle pain, it'll hurt in the same area. And because these things all overlap, if you push on it, it'll hurt the same. One thing that can happen is if you've had a history of ankle sprains, there's a small corner of this little bone underneath the fibula, that little point right there. That is the lateral process of the talus. Now, 
that doesn't seem like much, but this little bitty corner of the bone right here, when you roll your ankle, sometimes you can crack that. And when I was in med school, they told us that, uh, and it's right underneath the perineal tendons, right? So the perineal tendons are going right across there. So if you push on the perineal tendons that in that area, you're pushing on the lateral process. When I was in med school, we were taught that those are extremely rare injuries, that they're actually 0.9% of people that sustain ankle injuries will get a lateral process fracture. I saw a whole bunch of them, and I didn't think that was true. So we did this huge study at the University of Utah where we looked at all of the people that came in to the university hospital and clinics, uh, clinics over a three-year period. So there's a lot of people get injured in, in Utah um, because there's ice on the ground, people snowboard, people run. It's a really active area. We looked at a huge number of patients, and what we found was that actually almost 10% of all people who sustain an ankle sprain and go to get treatment had a lateral process fracture. So it was more than 10 times more common than previously thought. So I actually won an award from the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons for that research uh, because it was a huge study and it showed something completely different from what everybody has always been taught. So, you know, I mean, I saw a guy as a runner and I, when I was in residency and I actually walked into the treatment room to see him, it was in an orthopedic clinic and he had his x-rays up and I was like, oh, look, you have a lateral process fracture. And he started crying. And I was like, dude, it's, it's just a broken bone. We can fix that. It's not a big deal. You know, you're going to be okay. We'll put a couple screws in there. You'll be good as new in no time. And he said, you don't understand. For two years, I couldn't run. For two years, I had pain every time I walk around. I saw three different doctors and the last doctor actually stuck his finger in my face and he said, you don't have a problem in your ankle. The problem's in your head and you need a shrink. Well, it, so that's the thing. He was really upset about it because he, you know, he felt like an idiot for two years and he actually started to wonder whether or not this was, if he was making this up. But that's the thing is that they're easy to misdiagnose. If you have the wrong x-rays, if it's rotated just a little bit, you can completely miss it. So they are easy to miss. Um, and interestingly, uh, one of the findings that we found actually really correlates with that is that on the initial x-rays, if the soft tissue swelling is perfectly symmetrical, it's not likely to be a lateral process fracture. But if the soft tissue swelling is centered below the end of the fibula, it's really way more likely to actually be a lateral process fracture. And, you know, we did this huge study and one of the um, people that helped us with it was the director of musculoskeletal radiology at the University of Utah. She wrote a textbook on foot and ankle surgery and she's always talked to her fellows and residents in radiology about how to not miss these things. After that study, she actually went back, took all of our data, all of our cases, and then reviewed them to see how many of her own residents actually missed them, and tons of them were missing them. So even though they're supposed to be the experts, they were still missing them. So that's one thing is that, you know, if you, if you don't get better, if you try these simple things and you're not really improving, well, a broken bone that you have missed or misdiagnosed is not going to get better. So if you try to get better and you're not improving, then you have to seek treatment. You know, you really need to get an MRI or a CT scan and figure out whether or not you might have one of these lateral process fractures so that you can get the right treatment. That's amazing. Gosh, I, I can't believe that story that the, uh, the doctor told him He's all in his head. That's, that's amazing that a doctor would say that. But. So it does happen. Yeah, but also I think crazy. a lot of, you know, when doctors, if they, they think they, they think they have the right idea. And I'm, this is really, really common with runners. You know, I've seen dozens of runners who tell me, no, my doctor actually told me that I was lying, that there's no way that I had to be running. I had to be doing something because I'm not getting better. And so a lot of times doctors, you know, we think we know what will work. 
And then when the patient doesn't respond the way that we think based on what we've decided they have, we often, by default, will think, well, the patient must not be doing what I told him to do, or the patient would be better. You know, and it never occurs to most doctors that they could possibly be wrong, right? So, um, you know, but you as a patient, as a runner in particular, you have to be aware that sometimes doctors are actually thinking that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think with the doctors that do deal with runners quite a bit, like yourself, they do know that there are a lot of variables that go into a situation. So I feel like you would be, you know, better with uh, kind of doing a trial and error process, whereas a primary care doctor might might uh, think the, the patient might be lying or something. But um, that's interesting. That's really interesting. No matter where you are, you know, you have to find a doctor yeah. who really does work with runners because, you know, if they understand runners, then you're more likely to get better faster. And they're more likely to also help you understand, you know, and work toward your specific goal as opposed to just making the pain go away. You know, the pain going away is important, but running is more important, right? Absolutely. Yep. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> At this point, you should have a good idea about perineal tendon injuries and what you should do if you're a runner and you want to get back to running. But if you're at all confused, make sure you go to the show notes page on DocOnTheRun.com, click on the link at the bottom of the page so you can get access to the video lecture and immediate free access to the other episodes that explain all the specifics of perineal tendon injuries in excruciating detail as soon as they come out. Don't let perineal tendon injuries keep you from running. There's always a solution. You just have to find the right solution for you. If you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me, and then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. Thanks again for listening.